The book of Hebrews in chapter number 13. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter number 13. Lord began this afternoon, sat there at the house, and just praying, asking the Lord to show me what He wanted for the service tonight. And He began to deal with my heart about this subject. And uh, so I desire your prayers that the Lord would help me be able to give to you what He's put on my heart tonight and to deal with some things specifically here. One thing in particular that the Lord's put on my heart and that maybe through the help of the Lord get a greater understanding and to grow together tonight in the understanding of the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 13, when you found your place, if you're able, willing to do so, we'll stand together out of reverence and honor to the reading of the Word of God. I don't even want to read a whole verse, and I'm not doing that uh, to try to take it out of its context. I'm going to put it in its context by the help of the Lord and preach it in its context. But just maybe for emphasis, this is how the Lord has laid it on my heart. I just want to read part of a verse, really just four words that we'll read tonight in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 13 and verse number 10. The Bible says we have an altar. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. I want to preach tonight, if God will be my helper, deal with the altar and uh, the importance of the altar. Now here in the Scriptures we know that the Apostle Paul is the one writing here, or so we feel, to the Hebrew believers. He has spent the majority of the book writing to them about the better things that they have in Christ. They were being persecuted by their families and friends for abandoning Judaism and legalism and the law and going after Christ. And so many of them, because of that persecution, were looking back to Judaism and ceremonialism and the law and striving to enter back into or under the law. So the writer of the book of Hebrews begins in Hebrews chapter 1 and he begins to lay a foundation of better things that we have in Christ that are far superior to anything that was under the law. The writer mentions the things under the law. He mentions the first covenant that was made under the law and that that covenant was based upon sacrifices and priests and ordinances and the blood of animals. And then he talks about the better covenant that we have in Christ. And that that covenant is built upon the sacrifice, a better sacrifice that Christ offered himself once for sin forever. That it was not possible for the blood of goats and calves or the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean to take away sin but this man offered one sacrifice for sin forever. He had made an eternal atonement and appeased the wrath of God. It never is said in the Old Testament that God was ever, I don't believe if I've studied my Bible right, 
that God was the word pleased is never mentioned about Old Testament sacrifice. God was appeased, but God was not pleased. The word pleased has to deal with the fact that it satisfied the mind or the will of God. But the blood of the Old Testament never satisfied the will of God. He was, it was never done. There had to be a sacrifice continually. And the priest had to offer them continually. And the priest had to minister continually. But on the banks of the Jordan River, the Lord spoke out of heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, John had just got finished saying that he was the Lamb of God that would take away of the sin of the world. And so God the Father testified that he would be pleased with the sacrifice of his son. And so the writer of Hebrews is speaking about better things. That we have a better covenant based on better promises of a better sacrifice with a better priest and a better mediator of a better covenant, a better hope of things to come. And so it gets down to the end. He's already dealt with Hebrews chapter 11 where he goes at the beginning. He names all of those of old that the Hebrew believers knew about and learned about and heard about all their lives and he references all their works by faith. And then in chapter 12, he challenges them to also live by faith. And to look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and to consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners, lest they be wearied and faint in their mind. And now he gets down to chapter 13, and he continues as he's closing the book, and to write to them about our Christian duty. He speaks about love, brotherly love. He speaks about marriage. He speaks about our conversation, which is more than just our words, but it also is our actions and our attitude. He speaks about those who are over us and have the rule over us. But then he gets down to verse number 10, and he makes this statement, we have an order. And the we that he's talking about are those who are saved by the grace of God. And he goes on to say, and I'll read it, but I didn't feel compelled to in the beginning. He said, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. In other words, he's saying this altar has nothing to do with the old covenant and everything based on the new covenant. It's not in rights. It's not in ceremonialism. It's not in keeping commandments. And matter of fact, what he's writing about here is not a physical order like they served in the, in the tabernacle or in the temple of the Old Testament. But it is a spiritual order and it really is Christ. He is the altar. He's both the altar, the sacrifice, and the priest. And so the writer here says, we who are saved have an altar. Now you and I, we come in the house of God and many times, usually on a Sunday night and Wednesday night, and we didn't deny it, I didn't feel led to it, just felt led to get into the scripture, but often we'll come to what we call the altar. And we pray around the altar. 
but the reality is when we come to the altar, it is a signifying mark that we are coming to Christ. But this is a physical representation. The altar is not the carpet. The altar is not the steps. The altar is the place where we give ourselves to God. And so I begin to think about, and Brother Tim has been teaching, I don't want to get ahead of him or deal with anything uh, that he may be planning to deal with or the Lord spoke to him about. Uh, but if the Lord's in it, it'll all work out anyway. Uh, but I begin to think about as he was talking about presenting our bodies a living sacrifice. In order to have a sacrifice, we have to have an altar. And the altar that we have is not a brazen altar like they had in the Old Testament. It's not a physical altar. We've not come tonight to erect some stones to give a sacrifice. But our altar is Christ and we give ourselves to Him and based on what He's done for us. That's right. He'll go on to say in verse number 15 about this altar, what we offer there is by Him. It is by Christ that we are even able to offer at the altar. And so not only is He our altar, but He is our ability to sacrifice at the altar. That's why the Bible said we can come boldly before the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We are falling on the altar and the altar is Christ. I begin to think about the altar. What does the Bible say about the altar and the importance of the altar? I find it amazing that the first thing that Noah did after he got off the ark was he built an altar and he worshiped God there. And so it must take the altar for us to be able to worship. Now I'm not talking about this altar. I'm talking about our spiritual altar and we have access through the altar in the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament according to the Word of God was just a type and a shadow of more perfect things to come. And so it was by the altar that the high priest had access unto God. It's by what was done at the altar that allowed that priest to go in to the presence of God. And so it is by what has been done at our altar, not what we have done, but what He has done that allows us access to God. And the altar is an important thing. Without the altar, we can't be around the presence of God. Without the altar, we can't worship right. Without the altar, we can't praise right. Without the altar, we can't fellowship right. Without the altar, we can't serve right. And so everything hinges on what is done at the altar. For you see, if there's no private altar time, if you don't spend some time in the altar, on the altar, not necessarily some place you set up, but in fellowship and communion with Christ through the work that He's done for you, if we can't do that in private, we'll never do anything in public. There's no private praying. There'll never be public praying. If we're not willing to worship in private, we'll probably never really worship in public. If we can't praise Him in private, then we'll probably never take the time to praise Him in public. This thing about the altar, we've become so ceremonial. 
We look back at the Jews of the Old Testament and we're just about that way today. We get so ingrained in a form and a fashion we all do. And I'm saying we. And it's called for us to come to the altar and we bow without never really thinking about what we're doing, what it's typifying, what we're signifying but when we bow at the altar. We're not praying to the ground. We're not praying to the carpet or praying to the step. But we are bowing spiritually on the altar of Christ. And He's our access to God. Oftentimes we come to the altar. And we come to the altar, whether it be a private altar or a public altar. And we come real hurried. Do We just want to get it done. We just want to check it off our list. And the work done around the altar must never be heard. It can't be something if you really want to get anything done, if you really want to get down to business with God at the altar, it can't be heard. It's not something that we get up in the morning and have our check off list and say, well, I prayed today or I bowed at the altar today. I think you ought to have a time of prayer. But we ought not to do it just to get it done. How many times in our Christian walk, in our Christian service, as we go through this life, how many times do we just do it to get it done? How many times are we so hurried and we bow to pray and we can't even get focused in on what we're doing? All the cares of what we're fixing to have to do, the dreads of the day, the plans of the day. The plans of yesterday that we didn't get done, the plans of tomorrow that we're already worried about, and we can't cut ourselves loose from all of that. We get so busy and so hurried just because it's just something else to get done. I'm going to say true work around the altar cannot be hurried. I'm not saying you have to bow and pray for an hour. That's not what I'm saying. But you can't just rush through it just to get it done and it mean anything. Or you can rush through it and get it done all you want to. But your words will probably never get much higher than your head. We can't be hurried just to get it done. Then I want to say, and I'm saying we. I'm as guilty as the next person. I'll admit it. There are times I go to pray and I just go to pray to get it done. And make myself feel a little better. And so do you if you'd be honest. It is right. We get in a rut. We're creatures of habit. We get up sometimes and we go pray just to get it done. And we hurry while we're there. And it's nothing more than a form and a fashion. And some words we've got memorized. What's done around the altar can't be hurried. I want to say what's done around the altar can't be half-hearted. You can't do what you're doing just because it's your duty. We do what we do sometimes just to get it done. Sometimes we do what we do just because we feel it's our duty. I'm going to tell you, we all serve out of duty at some point or another in our life. We serve out of duty. We go to church because it's Sunday morning and it's time to go. We read our Bible because it's the thing expected of us to do. We pray because it's what's expected of us to do. And we feel like sometimes in our service to God that all we're doing is carrying out a duty. There's no devotion. It's just duty. 
And we all, I'm not preaching at you tonight, I'm preaching to us, myself. Sometimes we have no devotion about what we're doing, it's just all duty, and there's no heart in duty. We come and we say, Lord, it's me again. I guess it's time to pray, so I'm going to pray. And we call out. I'm not belittling anybody tonight. Don't don't take me the wrong way. I don't think you are, but I'm just saying. We go through our list. You ever felt like sometimes when you go, and I'm being real open. You ever feel like when you go to pray, you're just praying through a list, and you about got it memorized the steps you take about what you say. Oh, you might not say exactly the same words all the time, but you've got an outline to pray by. And we go through it. We ask the Lord to help us in the day, help us for what we encounter. We pray for the lost. And many times our prayers for the... And I'm saying we, and our, many times our prayers for the lost are so generic and cold. We just say, Lord, save the lost. And God's big enough to take that prayer and work on it. I mean, it's going to have to come from your heart, not just out of duty. And we say, Lord, heal the sick. And Lord, meet the needs of those that haven't. And there's nothing wrong with that when that's how your heart's telling you to pray. But what about when we're just doing it out of duty? There's no heart in it. We're just doing it because it's the thing to do. And if we would be honest, if we would be honest, if we don't really keep a check on ourselves, we'll pray more out of duty than anything else. It's part of that battle with the flesh. The flesh feels okay about itself when we just do it out of duty. The flesh feels okay about itself when we just do it to get it done. But it takes a dying out to the flesh. It takes a pushing aside of the flesh in order to pray from the heart. In order to do it not hurried. It takes the flesh being set aside and not worrying about all the stuff the flesh wants to do. And not being hurried. Not just trying to get it done. Not just trying to do it out of duty. But do it because we desire to do it. Because that altar, that place that God is given to us is a precious thing. We're not bowing. I don't know where you pray. I used to be really, really, and I'm, I'm just being real open. It's just us tonight. I used to have a place, and I still have a place, but I used to be real formal about my praying. It took me a long... I'm just... You may be more spiritual than I am. It took me a long time to break formalism. And in reality, Brother Tim, is all I was raised in. I mean, that's what I saw was formalism when people prayed. And so I felt like if I was going to pray then I had to go to this place and I had to have everything set up just right and I had to say the right words and I had to do the right thing. And it just and sometimes I would get in, or sometimes I'd get through, but more often than not, it was just formalism and duty. Now, I'm not taking anything away from my place. I'll still go to that place occasionally, but I don't go to that place every day. And you can fall out with me and think bad of me if you want to, but the Lord brought me to the place in my life where I understood that it's not about formalism. You don't have to bow your head 
and be down on your knees to talk to God. We don't have to have a physical altar. That's what the writer was trying to get these Hebrew believers to understand. We don't have to go to the temple. We don't have to come to the church. If it was like it was in the Old Testament, we couldn't pray unless we came here. Paul said we have an altar, a spiritual altar, and that altar is Christ. And you can have access to that altar wherever you are. At any time, at any point of the day. And you don't have to go to the same place every day. You can pray wherever God leads you to pray. However, you get, it get works for you. It doesn't work the same way for everybody. Do what works for you. Seek God for your life. You can't pray like I pray and I can't pray like you pray. We got to do what works for us. What God leads us to do. And I really believe that. I've heard preachers talk about trying to find a place to pray and I used to never understood that, but that's right. There'll be somewhere that you are led by God to be able to get a hold of Him. But it's not about the place. It's about that spiritual altar that we have and that altar is Christ. We can't do it half-hearted. We can't do it hurried. I'm going to tell you, we can't do what we do around the altar hesitantly either. Can't be no doubt about us when we go down on the altar. I mean, what good would it do for us to ask the Lord how to do all these things if we don't have the faith to believe He can do what we're asking? You think there's any doubt in Elijah when he bowed? The Bible said in First Kings that he rebuilt the altar of the Lord that was broken down, and he bowed and he prayed, and he said, "Lord." I need you to show them today that you're God and that I'm your prophet and that I've done this according to your word. You think there's any doubt in Elijah that God could do what he is asking him to do? He wasn't hesitant about it. He didn't say, give me three or four hours to get where I can get a hold of God. He just had a place. He had an altar. And the reality was Elijah had done some private praying before the public time ever came. Many of our times we come to the house of God and we come around the altar, we get called on to pray. And the sad statement is for many people, many of the children of God, it may be the first time they've prayed since they were in church the last time. And we wonder where the power's gone. And we wonder why things are not happening. We're going to have to get back to the altar. And understand the importance of it again. It's not this material here, but it's Christ. When we bow, we're not bowing to the ground, we're bowing to Christ, upon Christ, giving ourselves to Him. And so the work that's done there can't be done hesitantly, it can't be done half heartedly, it can't be done in a hurry. But then what is it that's done? What is given? We've been studying in Sunday school about presenting ourselves a living sacrifice. Where does that happen? On the altar. See, the Lord asked for a different sacrifice from us than He asked of old, but Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. Nobody needs to die. He already has all the blood. So where does a living sacrifice get offered? It gets offered on the altar of Christ. We give ourselves to Him. He wants our person. And I said this morning, it's amazing to me that He wants us at all, but He does. He wants us. 
What He's asked of us is to give our person to Him. Our bodies a living sacrifice. And it must be holy and acceptable unto God. We're not doing what we're doing to please each other. We're not doing what we're doing to please the church. We're not doing what we're doing to please others. We're doing what we're doing to please Him. I was reading out to one writer and I like what he said. He said that holy part. He said that holy just simply means that we are exclusively His. We're not offering ourselves to anything or anybody else. It's His. All of us, all we are is His. And then the acceptable unto God part, he said, the one to whom the sacrifices are given makes the requirements. He's the one that determines whether or not we are acceptable or not. But here's the thing. Here's the amazing thing. Now I'm not saying you can live any old way you want to and come to the altar and be accepted. That's not what I'm saying. You understand that? But in the Old Testament, if you go back to the book of Exodus... The altar was purged and cleansed by blood. And the Bible said, the Lord said, whatsoever toucheth the altar is holy. And so if we are giving ourselves unto God on the altar of Christ, when we give ourselves upon Him, upon His work, by Him we are made holy and acceptable unto God. Ain't that something? Ain't that amazing? It's not that we can be acceptable in ourselves. It's not that we can be holy within ourselves. It's going to take being laid upon the altar of Christ and the finished work of Christ. And that makes us holy and acceptable unto God. See those lambs and those bullocks and those turtles, they were not holy. But the altar was holy. And so when they now, I don't know if you're getting all this. When they became one with the altar, that which was unholy was made holy by the altar. And so you and I are not holy. But when we are offered upon the altar of Christ and we become one with Him, we that are unholy are made holy and acceptable in the sight of God. And so He wants our person Then he wants our praise according to Scripture. And I'm about done. I'm just trying to give it to you as the Lord gave it to me today. And we do this by Him. So according to Scripture, the only way we can give our person, the only way for us to be holy and acceptable is by Him as the altar. And the only way we can give our praise according to verse 15 is by Him. Sounds pretty much like it all revolves around Him. He said, By Him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. The fruit of the lips, the writer here, is referring back to the first fruits in the Old Testament which were always designated to belong to God. And the writer here is saying the sacrifice of praise that we offer to God belongs to God. 
It's not that we're giving Him something uh, to make ourselves acceptable or to make us deserving. We can't do that. It's that we are giving Him our praise uh, because it belongs to Him. That He is deserving of it. That there's nobody else to praise. There's nobody else that can do the things He does for us. It's rightfully His. He said, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. This is a never-ending sacrifice. It's not that we go to God today and get caught up on our praise. We'll never get caught up on it. The psalmist said He daily loadeth us with all His benefits. And so in return, we ought to be daily offering up the sacrifice of praise. And the writer said that's the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. The writer of the Psalms wrote it like this, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And so He wants not just our person, on the altar, but He wants our praise on the altar. And then in verse 16, He says to do good. He wants our participation on the altar. There's something that we're supposed to do for Him and by Him through the altar. To do good and to communicate, forget, not for with such sacrifices now here's this phrase again God is well pleased there's a work to be done and this work is driven by love it's not driven by duty it's not driven by slavery it's not driven by bondage It's not driven by the letter of the law, but it's driven by love. We're not offering a legal sacrifice. We're offering a loving sacrifice. We give what we give because we love Him. And the writer said to do good and to communicate. The word communicate means to contribute or participate based on fellowship. The more we fellowship with God, through the work of the altar, and the more it will drive us to do good and participate at the house of God. Amen. I understand, and I'm going to tread carefully here. I understand everybody has a different personality. I understand that some people are backwards. I understand that some people are bashful. But I'm going to tell you, the more you fellowship and are driven by the love of the older, the more you spend time you spend on the older, the more it will put in you to contribute when you come to the house of God. And it may just be three or four or five words you say, but if that's what God puts in you to contribute, you ought to give it to Him. We're not testifying for each other. You're not testifying for me. We're testifying for Him. Do good and communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. One writer said this, good works toward man are a result of a grateful heart toward God. 
And I think that's right. The more time we get around the altar, the more time we'll understand how good God has been to us and how undeserving we are and how deserving He is. And it will well up in us to do good. Now these sacrifices may cost you a little time. They may cost you to think of others a little bit. They may cost you some of your treasures. But we're doing what we're doing because of the great price that was paid for us. He gave His life for us. And the writer said in Romans 12 that it is our reasonable service. God's not asking anything unreasonable by asking us to live for Him. He died for us. Many other religions around the world, their leaders, their so-called gods, ask them to die for them. That is the ultimate sign of love is to die for them. But our God says the ultimate sign of love is for us to live for Him. He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one toward another. And the only way we can have love toward another right is that we love God right. That is right. Somebody made the statement, or I read it somewhere, and it rings very true and it lines up right here and I'm done. Somebody said you can love people and not love God. But you cannot love God and not love people. And that's right. If God demonstrates His love toward you, it will put a desire in you to demonstrate that same love toward others. He said we're taught of God to love one another. John said if we love, if we say, if we can't love our brother who we have seen, how can we say we love God who we've not seen? If we love God right, the old song, I don't know how spiritual it is or who even wrote it, but the writer wrote, you can't love God if you don't love God if you don't love your neighbor. And that's exactly right. You can't. You can't love God if you don't love people. It doesn't work that way. The altar. What an important thing the altar is that makes us well-pleasing in the sight of God. To think that God just wants us laid on the altar of Christ. He wants us, our sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of our person, the sacrifice of our participation. And when it is placed upon Christ, it becomes well-pleasing in the sight of God. The reason for that is God was well-pleased with Christ. And so if God is well pleased with the altar and it is holy, then what is placed upon the altar becomes well pleasing and holy in the sight of God. Lord, help me and Lord, help us not to underestimate or overlook the importance of what goes on at the altar. The reason we give what we call an altar of invitation for sinners is not so they can come so much and bow on a step, but it's that they can come and bow themselves or throw themselves on Christ.
Because that's the only way they can be acceptable in the sight of God is through Christ. And even after we're saved, the only way that our works, our sacrifices can be acceptable is that we, we are placed upon Christ and He is our altar. We have that altar. This was a word of confidence, a word of exhortation to the Hebrew believers. We have an altar that's greater than the altar of the tabernacle and the temple. We have an altar so great that they don't even have a right if they're just serving under legalism and, and the law and ceremonial. And he said they don't even have the right to this altar. But those who are saved have access to this altar. And we should use this altar. And only the things that are placed on this altar will count in eternity. Lord, help us to understand the importance of the altar. Father, I thank You tonight for the privilege, opportunity to be able to be in Your house with Your people. Thank You, Lord, for the Word of God.